Hello, and welcome to the Loop Ventures Brain Tech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton, and I'm joined today by Ian Stevenson, an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, and Conrad Cording, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. They're two former physicists turned computational neuroscientists. In this episode, we'll cover the importance of neuron tracking, the creation of Stevenson's Law, named after Ian, and finish with the headwinds facing neuron tracking development. And now, Ian Stevenson and Conrad Cording. Ian and Conrad, thanks for joining the show. It's actually the first time we've had two guests on at the same time. So welcome you both to the show. Hey, Doug. Thank you. So why don't we start with each of you, if you could, give us kind of just a brief history about how you came to be interested in neuroscience and sort of all the way up to what you're working on today. And, and maybe, Ian, you could start with for us. Sure. So my name is Ian Stevenson. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut. And I was actually a PhD student with Conrad. So he influenced a lot of my interest in neuroscience. But I think before I got to his lab, I was a physics major and as I was sort of doing my physics training, I got the feeling that biology was sort of the place where there was just many, many, many more unknowns. And so I started transitioning into neuroscience. And since I had some quantitative sort of experience and interest, I ended up doing computational neuroscience in Conrad's lab. Great. Well, my name is Conrad Cording. I'm full professor at UPenn. I just started this July, so I'm still learning about the university and meeting interesting new people every day. My path here is very similar to Ian's in an interesting way. I started out as a physics undergraduate. Early on, like in the first three years or so, I started getting really into biology because those seemed where the really interesting questions were. And then I switched to Zurich, Switzerland, just because the guys where I originally studied in Heidelberg wouldn't let me do biology. And then through various stages, I became a neuroscientist. And in that sense, I'm interested in any aspect of neuroscience, anything that's like roughly at the intersection of data, neuroscience and technology. It's great. And Conrad, congratulations on the move to Penn. It's a great school, not too far from where I am in New York. And so maybe the next question I'd love to dig into, Ian, you mentioned that you were a student of Conrad's, but sort of beyond that student-teacher relationship, how did you guys start working on projects together? Well, I guess I can just say that in talking to some other students who had met Conrad before, somehow they would, they always described Conrad as sort of being very intense, I think, maybe too intense for a lot of other people, but, but I, always sort of, uh, I, I always sort of very naturally, I think, got along with Conrad. And I mean, I think part of that is we're sort of equally stubborn when it comes to trying to figure out what's going on in data and then trying to tell a story about the data. My general approach to computational neuroscience is very, Conrad mentioned that he's very focused on data science at the intersection um, with neuroscience, and I, I am as well. I think letting the data speak and sort of building tools that help the data speak is sort of something that we really need to move forward. Yeah, I think for me, the big thing, and that I think I don't share that view with all that many people, I think the big problem in science is that we don't know what the questions are. It's not that we know the questions and we're trying to figure out what the right technologies are to do that. That's important too, sure. But when it comes to the brain, we don't know what the questions are. So for me, projects always kind of come from a place of 
uncertainty. I didn't know which question to ask. But like, it's probably true that I'm a little intense about not knowing what the questions are. But like, that makes for fun brainstorming. And we get coffee, a lot of coffee. I have coffee with lots of people and a lot of coffee with my students. And I think just asking what the questions are is the first step. That's how it usually starts for me, at least. I think that's a great approach. And and maybe the idea of asking questions, one project that I know we had seen your names in reference to is something you worked on in 2011, sort of asking the question of how quickly neurons can be tracked, the number of neurons that we can track. And your research showed that there's this sort of Moore's law in neuroscience that the number of neurons we can track sort of doubles every seven years ago. So what is the inspiration or what was the inspiration for kind of figuring out that observation or even asking the question to your point? I guess I can take a stab at that first. That's probably the thing I am most well known for, but somehow it never seems particularly much of a finding in my mind. The actual idea was to sort of, going back to Conrad's point, trying to figure out which questions we should ask in computational neuroscience. And it sort of came up that, you know, there's this big open question, which is that we don't really have a good understanding of how populations of neurons work. The reason that there's this gap in our knowledge is because, well, we don't have a lot of data from populations of neurons except over the past 20 years. And that, I think, was sort of the impetus to, to go back and sort of actually say, well, you know, how much data did we have when? And sort of how does that feed into our understanding of populations of neurons? Yeah, so Ian and me, we are really into understanding how neurons work. And it seemed natural when we wrote a review about how neurons might work and how we could use data to get at how neurons work, to also somehow add, well, how did we get here? What is holding us back? And as soon as one asks that question and is kind of in that mode of saying, okay, what are the questions that are relevant here? Then the question, well, how much data do we actually have and what's their nature starts to feel like a very important question. Conrad, you mentioned a question there about what's holding us back. And I'm curious, as you undertook that project and have continued to work on studies in sort of computational neuroscience since then, what is your opinion that is holding us to that seven-year sort of barrier? Has that changed? Have we gotten any better with that? Progress is speeding up a little when it comes to the number of simultaneously recorded neurons. In part, it's because people start asking how they could scale it up. DARPA is putting a lot of money into scaling it up. Arguably, significant parts of the Brain Initiative are aimed at destroying Stevenson's law, which says that it does double every seven years. If any of those projects will be successful, we will considerably speed that up. You see, like the important thing about Stevenson's law isn't that it doubles every seven years. The important thing is that it doubles every seven years, where the number of transistors in your computer doubles every two years. So why is it that neuroscience is so much slower than Moore's law? And that is kind of like, it feels like there's a mistake, something happening that shouldn't. And so I think that the finding of Stevenson's law really gave rise to people trying to break it. And eventually they will. How long do you think it'll take until we really crack the code where seven goes to three and a half or something like that? What's your perspective on what has to happen to get there? I think there will be a real transition If you have an electrode to get data out of the brain, you'll need an amplifier for that. And you'd need a way of digitizing that. 
both of these things are really fundamentally electronics problems. There's no reason why that stuff shouldn't get more integrated and faster and easier to use at a very rapid pace. And at some level, you could say we have a debt in neuroscience. We're so far back. We should be recording tens of thousands of neurons, but we're only recording a thousand at the moment. So I don't think that what we'll see is like a slow transition where we kind of go from seven to three and a half. I think there's probably an unrealized factor, hundred or thousand somewhere that we might overcome over the next decade or two. Makes sense. More of a gradual approach. No, a less of a gradual approach. Yeah. So if you want, like, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 or 20 years time, we will see a million neurons. That would, at the current rate, that would take us five decades, seven decades or something like that. Mm -hmm. Got it. Well, let me shift gears a little bit to a question more around data, which I know is a big focus for both of you. And maybe from a high level, just for our audience, how does the approach to analyzing data, neuronal data, things that are related to computational neuroscience, differ from data science approaches to just traditional kind of large digital data sets that we're all familiar with in the computing world? I mean, I think in, in many ways there's a lot of overlap and similarities with certain data types. The biggest difference from my perspective is probably just sort of the nature of the data. So these neurons, they're firing action potentials, which is their primary mode of communication. And so really for each neuron, the signal that you get, it's a very sparse, it's what they call a point process. So there's just spikes at particular points in time. And people have done all kinds of things to smooth these spikes or convert them into real signals. But fundamentally, they're sort of at this point level. And I think from my perspective, I think it's helpful to analyze them that way. Yeah, and Ian's been developing a lot of awesome algorithms in that area. I should mention, talk about one point that I think is very important here, which is the answer that neuroscientists strive for is at some level different from the answer that a lot of people in other data science for. So basically, say Google, if they are good at predicting which web page you will want to click on, that's at some level success from their perspective. So for them, prediction is what things are about. But for us biologists, at some level, mechanism is what things are about. We really want a causal description. If we think about satisfying models of neuroscience, they're in terms of a neuron makes some other neurons do things, make other neurons do things, makes behavior happen. It's how do neurons give rise to thought? How do neurons give rise to action? How do neurons give rise to perception? So there's an underlying causal question where we want to know what the effect is that's being produced by a neuron. And in that sense, it differs somewhat from the typical data science application where prediction is found. At some level, prediction in neuroscience is interesting, but it's not ultimately satisfying. We want to know how it works. As you think about the way Google uses data, and as you mentioned, they're trying to predict human activity in a sense, is there some inherent unpredictable nature of how neurons fire, even between one human's brain versus another human's brain, or even within the same brain, are there sort of unpredictable patterns that don't lend themselves to that predictability? Absolutely. 
<laughs> but that's uh, that is like a funny question. So, like, see, here's what we can't know: if we can't predict what a neuron does, say, based on what other neurons do, then there's two possible interpretations: either there is real noise in the brain. Neurons somehow randomize things, maybe. Maybe there is quantum mechanical effects that produce random fluctuations. Or alternatively, we might just be really clueless at understanding what's going on. Unfortunately, no one can tell us of the things that we don't yet understand, how much of it is actual noise versus how much of it is structure that we just don't understand it. Well, even above the quantum level, there's ion channel noise which is sort of more at the thermodynamic level. And then there's the noise in vesicle release, right? And these are things that I'm particularly interested in, but those are actually like, to me, quite big noise sources that you could sort of never remove. And you mentioned this other point that, you know, comparing across brains or, or within a brain, I think within a brain, there's actually a lot of structure that people treat as noise. So, that, you know, it's just saying that noise is in the eye of the beholder, but because, you know, the person has their own internal states and things going on in their brain, it's not completely predictable given variables in the outside world. So part of it is a matter of modeling what's going on inside the brain, I think, in detail and sort of incorporating that structure. And then across brains, that's actually a huge problem. So once you get beyond invertebrates like the nematode worm or flies where they have these big neurons that can be identified by a certain morphology. In mammals, it's very, very, very hard to match up neurons one-to-one. -one. In a lot of cases, it's impossible. <laughs> so you can't sort of say this particular neuron in one person's brain is matched up to this neuron in another person's brain. Which is, by the way, a horrible problem, no? Because it means that if both you and me do research on the brain, it's very hard to quantify how my research can inform yours and vice versa. It is difficult. And even within the same person's brain, does plasticity sort of factor in? And as someone learns and their brain adapts, one way you thought the brain worked when you previously mapped it is maybe no longer true in the future. That's right. You can't measure from the same brain because the same brain is no longer the same brain the next minute. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So how do we overcome something overcomable like that in the sense of being able to build on top of each other's research and things like that. You just mentioned, Conrad, that it's difficult to take someone's research and, and recreate it because of this issue. That is very hard to think about it. And I think that's, that's something that the field is currently actively thinking about. I don't know what the solution to that is. It's one of these questions that's at the back of our mind, and where it's very unclear how we'll solve that. So some people say the right way to do it is to do far fewer experiments, to basically have a lot of people pull their resources together and do experiments on the same brain. Other people say the opposite is right, that instead of understanding a single person, we need to look at lots of brains and then we can somehow compare them. Neither of them, I think anyone has really hashed out how that's going to work in the end. And maybe related to that, as you think about neuroscience as a whole, a lot of the innovation, a lot of the breakthroughs seem to come at the academic level. But more recently, we've had some private industry sort of entry from companies like Neuralink with Elon Musk and Kernel with Brian Johnson. How do you see companies like that that have very private goals and financial goals for their research 
versus academic research that you both conduct. Conrad, are you on, on the board of one of those? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm somewhat advising Carmel. I'm involved in other companies as well. I mean, like, look, as an academic, I'm extremely happy that these companies are in our area because if anything, they aren't going to solve the brain and then life is over for us academics. If anything, they will discover some products in that area which will make life better for us as academics. But it's an interesting space there. You know? like they have this problem that they need actual applications, that they need things that make their money. Whereas us as academics, we can optimize for what we think the most important questions are. I'm excited to see what comes out of them. But I think you know, the question is, to what extent do the products that these companies are designing rely on some understanding of neural systems that we don't already have? versus how much is just sort of like banging on the system the way that deep brain stimulation does or building a you know a system that can decode neural signals but you know doesn't necessarily incorporate any of these more fundamental computational principles right so you know you can do pretty well with a simple linear decoder a lot of times even though the data is a point process you can treat it as if it's a nice smooth signal and just put in linear regression and, and that as a first pass does pretty well and you can sort of figure out what the animal usually was looking at or how they were moving without really much understanding of the system itself but, but i think even then there will be synergies now let's imagine for the moment that the companies in that space will go route where they don't try to really understand the brain, where they're sufficiently happy just test things until something works. Even in that case, they will have to develop neural technologies to get data in and out of brains. And that in turn is exactly what we need for progress in academic neuroscience. So I think it's very synergistic. Yeah, everybody seems to be working toward sort of the same ultimate goal. I think that's the most important takeaway. Let me move on to just our last question for the podcast. So we always like to ask our guests, what is your favorite neuroscience-related book that you think the audience should read? Maybe Conrad, I'll start with you first. I want to nominate a book that isn't actually a neuroscience book, which is a book about how we can find out that variables causally influence one another. It's a beautiful book by Angrist. It's called Mostly Harmless Econometrics. And it's being used to teach economists to find out what the causal effect is of, say, changes in laws and policy. Now, what neuroscientists try to figure out how neurons influence one another, which is fundamentally a causal question. And I think what we should learn as neuroscientists is to really ask questions in a way that meaningfully tell us how causality works in the brain. I will recommend a neuroscience book. It's a bit of an old book, but I like um, Mind Wide Open by Stephen Johnson. It's not really targeted at the neural circuit sort of fundamental biology level, but I think for people outside of neuroscience, it's actually one of the more nuanced and insightful books that's out there, just in terms of summarizing what we know about the brain and, and how we know it. Excellent. We'll put both of those books in the show notes, but that's it for the show today. So Ian, Conrad, really appreciate you joining the podcast today. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having us. Yes.